Matthew 10, verses 16, right through to 42, at the end of the chapter. Let's hear what the Spirit has to say to his church. So Jesus speaking, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father hit a child. <clears throat> and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of far more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do you not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Our Father, you've told us man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word. Uh, that comes from above. And so we pray that these words we've just heard from our, our Lord Jesus uh, would be food for our souls, uh, fuel for our walk with him. In Paris, therefore, we pray by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We might imagine how the disciples are feeling. Uh, these are the, the 12 apostles Jesus is speaking to directly in the passage we've just read. And uh, we've jumped in halfway through the speech. And so far... They're probably buzzing. Uh, they've been picked as the 12. Okay, these are going to be the 12 apostles. You, says Jesus, you in verse 1 of chapter 10 are, are going to have my authority. Uh, you're going to be able to drive out unclean spirits. Uh, more than that, you'll be able to heal every disease and every affliction. 
The disciples have just seen Jesus giving sight to the blind, helping deaf people hear for the first time. Those who are mute, unable to speak, can speak again. They've even seen him raise the dead. And then Jesus says, you're going to be able to go and do that. And you're going to preach. They've just heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons of all time. And again, Jesus says, right, you have my authority. Go and do the same. They're going to be full of excitement. Uh, even a reader of Matthew's Gospel at this point, if you've been sort of tracking through us, and forgive me for those of you who are here for the first time, but what, one of the things we've seen in Matthew's Gospel is he's telling the whole story of Jesus in a way that makes Mo- uh, Jesus look like Moses. Uh, the rescue from an evil king as a baby, the, the sort of going up the mountain, doing the teaching, all the rest of it. Uh, and we've seen in Matthew 8 and 9 that uh, Jesus does these 10 miracles and 10, sort of 10 times faith is, is grown in God's people. As a parallel to the ten times in the Old Testament, God's people disobeyed and showed a lack of faith when they wandered in the desert under Moses. And the next thing that happens in the Moses story is Moses, well, Moses, he dies, but he sends the 12 tribes in to conquer the land. So someone who's been following this theme might be thinking, great, here we go. Jesus sending his 12 new disciples, the 12 new heads of Israel, as it were, out to conquer. Finally, this is the great moment. We'll change the world, we'll transform the cities, we'll build the church. And then they hear, well, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, verse 16. Okay, a bit more caution begins to sort of sink over the disciples. It doesn't sound great, a sheep and a wolf, but no worries. We're, you know, we're still, well, we're still your disciples, your apostles, Jesus. I'm sure we can cope with it. And then verse 17 Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And suddenly the whole tone of the, the whole tone of this commissioning speech takes a bit of a turn. You can just see the disciples' mood beginning to drop a little, can't you? Uh, We thought this was going to be triumph. This is Jesus' great mission speech. Some of you might have just arrived at university and, and joining the Christian Union. You've heard the Christian Union explain that there are uh, an, a mission team out to reach the campus. Okay, and I, I, don't, I don't know if the CU have met together yet, yet this term. But if the CU were to gather all the students and say, look, right, we need to charge you for mission. Okay, we want to excite you about what's going to happen in the CU this term. You'd imagine that there'd be stories of all the people we saw converted last year. Uh, perhaps uh, the, the speaker would preach from that, the great harvest we see in Revelation. People of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the phone. Let's go and find them. Jesus, in his great mission G-up speech, talks about how his missionaries, the apostles, are going to be arrested, flogged, betrayed by their own family, and perhaps even killed. There are no promises of success, no promises of triumph. It's an extraordinary G-up speech for a mission. But Jesus obviously knows best. So we want to dive in and work out quite why he speaks like this and what are the promises for us. Now, if you were here last week and when we looked at the first half of this speech, you'll remember that actually, first and foremost, this is a speech given to the disciples before it's a speech given to us. Uh, We saw that because the disciples, if you look at verse 1, who are gathered together and then named, so these are the 12, are then sent in verse 5, not everywhere, but rather just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the disciples aren't sent off to 
Ethiopia and Egypt and Greece and Rome. Not yet. They will be at the end of the gospel, but not yet. At the moment, they're just sent to Israel. In fact, they're not allowed even to go into any of the towns of the Samaritans. And that means that actually the disciples will be trapped in, the, in Galilee, right at the top of Israel. They couldn't even get down to kind of Jerusalem and the main bit. So, so this mission trip they've been commissioned for is pretty small. Okay, it's a tiny little bit of Israel at the top. And again, in the, in the passage we read, you, there are elements of it that very obviously are aimed at the 12 disciples doing the mission that Jesus sent them on 2,000-ish years ago. So we see that who's going to persecute them? Verse 17, it's going to be the synagogues. You're going to be delivered to the courts. That's probably the kind of church courts and flogged in the synagogues. Now, you're very unlikely if you go out to part of the Christian Union mission team or just trying to do evangelism and lead, you're not going to be flogged by a synagogue, are you? Okay, we, can't, we can't jump directly to us in every verse in this passage. Uh, likewise, verse 23 and this is a really important little detail, but a strange verse. I wonder if it jumped out of you when we read it. Verse 23, Jesus says to the disciples, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Strange, isn't it? You won't have got through all these towns before I, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' name for himself, come. What's going on there? Particularly what's going on there. We asked in 2018, 2018. Now, I don't know how big, I don't know how many towns there are exactly in Israel, but I'm pretty sure you could have got around all the towns in 2018 years. So, so what's going on? Uh, it is a confusing verse. One of the commentators said it's one of the hardest verses in the New Testament. But I think what's going on is this. We read that, and, and probably, particularly if we've been around church for a while, we think, well, it must be talking about Jesus coming back, his second coming. But that's very difficult to understand, isn't it? Because, as I said, there's plenty of time to have got around Israel by now. Jesus still hasn't come back. Actually, I think the way that that Jesus is talking about his coming there is not about his coming down to earth, but rather about his coming back to heaven. It's picking up language from Daniel 7. Uh, You don't particularly need to turn to it, but let me just read you a a few verses Uh, from Daniel chapter 7, about this Son of Man. Uh, Daniel 7 verse 13, Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. See the language parallel? The Son of Man comes. Daniel 7, I saw the Son of Man coming. But he's not coming down on the clouds. I mean, he will do that one day. I'm not denying that Jesus is going to come back. That's a promise elsewhere. But, but here in Daniel 7, and I think it makes most sense in Matthew's Gospel as well, Jesus is coming back to heaven. And he's presented for the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and what happens? What did you hear? He's given a kingdom with all peoples, all nations, all languages. And that makes sense, I think, in Matthew 10. What, what Jesus is saying is, you won't, you disciples, you won't have evangelized all of Israel before I go back to heaven. He's talking about the ascension. Remember in Acts 1, where Jesus goes back on the clouds to heaven? And at that moment, the Spirit is poured out, and actually the gospel goes to all nations. 
In Pentecost, Acts 1, Acts 2, that Jesus going up in the clouds and the Spirit coming down, that is the moment that, if you like, God goes international. No longer are they just focused on Israel, but, but the disciples go out to all nations. The whole point of that being, whatever you make of that, the whole point of this being, that this is a, a particular commission to the 12 disciples, but it is one where Jesus just begins to cast his eye further afield. He knows that one day, because the, the Jews, his own people, are going to turn their back on him, that one day he is going to have to go global. That was always a plan, in fact. And so there are hints, even in this speech, to the disciples, that, that some of what he's teaching is going to be really for their next mission when they go international. And so he talks about being brought before kings. Well, that's not going to happen when the disciples just walk around little Galilee. No kings up there. He talks about brother betraying brother to death. Well, again, it doesn't happen to any of the disciples. None of them die on this little mission trip in Matthew 10, do they? They all come back together again. They're all there for the next commissioning at the end of Matthew's gospel. So, so it's a strange speech, I think, where, where two things are woven together. Some of it about the disciples back then reaching the, the, the Israelites, and some of it about their next mission to the ends of the earth. And I want to pick just three things that I think, three principles of mission that that help us, that help us understand. What what would it like to be a disciple? Because you can't be a disciple and not be involved in mission. It's not as if mission is given to one or two people and then leading singing is given to another couple of people and then doing the children's work is given to another couple of people. No, we're all involved in the mission of the church. We do different things, sure. Not all of us are great speakers. Not all of us are brilliant one-to-one evangelists. We, we, we're good at different things, but as a church body, we inherit this job to go and take Jesus to the nations. So here we go. This is Jesus' pep talk on the eve of mission. First thing he says is, they're going to hate you, but keep going. They're going to hate you, but keep going. How encouraging is that? Verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Children, what happens if a sheep fights a wolf? Who do you think would win? The sheep or the wolf? Isaac. The wolf, wouldn't it? Exactly. Wolves are tough and scary. They've got big teeth. Sheep, which is a bit dopey, aren't they? Okay, they're not very strong. They're not great fighters. Jesus is saying, you're going out. You're, well, defenseless in many ways. But people out there, some of them are going to be like wolves waiting to attack you. That's why you need to be wise like serpents. Now, the serpent in the Bible is often associated with Satan. Jesus isn't saying you need to be kind of crafty and deceitful like Satan, obviously. He's saying you need to be smart, not dumb like a sheep smart in how you act and he'll explain what that means as the sermon goes on uh, the reason we know you're not allowed to sin like a serpent is he, go, he goes on to compare them with doves as well innocent as doves so don't be foolish don't be naive but don't sin in your cleverness and you are going to suffer you'll be persecuted some of that persecution will be legal you see that uh, they're going to deliver you over to the courts, verse 17. Uh, increasingly, we see that in our own country, don't we? If you take a stand on Jesus, and particularly on his, his way of life, what it looked like to be a Christian, his morality, if you like, then actually some people are being brought before the courts, even in England. It's certainly the case worldwide. We can't rely on the fact that the government is always going to be on the same side as the church. You'll be persecuted legally, and that's probably especially true for those of you who work in public service jobs. The kind of diversity, politics, those sort of kind of things that increasingly are, are pushed upon us. Uh, those of you who teach, or the pressure, I'm afraid, is very likely to land on you before it lands on the rest of us. 
uh, if you want to hold orthodox views, particularly on issues like sexuality, uh, you may well be legally persecuted. Uh, sometimes, says Jesus, the persecution will be violent. How about that? You'll be flogged in their synagogues. Again, we're on the whole spared much of that in the UK, but look worldwide. And tragically, week by week, we hear about brothers and sisters being beaten, attacked for their faith. Uh, It's personal. They're chilling words, aren't they? Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, child, the children rise up against their parents. Uh, Even those who we we expect to be on, have our back, on our side, betray and hand us over. Uh, Even fatally, verse 21, it'll be fatal. Children rise up against parents and have them put to death. And it's going to be full of hatred. Verse 22. Uh, sorry, not 22. Uh, verse 24 and 25. Uh, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant his master. Uh, and you'll be like me, says Jesus. Therefore, if they've called the master of the house, that's Jesus. If they've called the master of the house, Jesus, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign, slander, attack those of his household? Look, Beelzebul is another word for Satan. It's different from Beelzebub in the Old Testament, Lord of the Flies, that's a different thing. Beelzebul is another word for Satan. They're calling Jesus satanic. So what are they going to think of his followers? Now, now Jesus was good, wasn't he? Never lied, never cheated, never betrayed anyone, never sinned. And they thought he was satanic. So, so what chance have the rest of us got? We're not pure, we're not 100% good, we do sin. We are closer <laughs> to Satan, and that we do sin and rebel. If they think Christ was satanic, what are they going to think of you and me? See Jesus' point? He is not telling the disciples they're going to get a great reception, is he? Uh, back in the early 20th century, uh, Ernst Shackleton was leading an, an expedition to the Antarctic, and so the, so the legend goes. He put an advert in the, in the press. He wanted to take this trip to the, to the South Pole, children, Okay. And he put an advert in the paper because he wanted people to come with him. And the advert said this, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Apply and the address. What an advert is that? But Shackleton knew what he was doing. He wasn't promising them glory. He wasn't promising them success and results. What he wanted were men utterly given to the task. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's not promising his church, huge success all the time. Now, sometimes there is success and sometimes there isn't. But rather what he wants are men and women given to this task. And so he tells them to be wise. Verse 16, be wise as serpents. You are being warned. Uh, let me ask you, if, if you're a Christian, what are your expectations of the church? Or maybe you're a student in the Christian Union. What are your expectations of the Christian Union? H- how do you expect this year to go? You've got your mission planned in February or whatever it might be. We've got an evangelistic event here at church in a couple of weeks. What what are our expectations? At times, I think, as a church, as the church in England, we we, we kind of think that people ought to like us. Did you find that? They should like us. And we we get hold of some of Jesus' teaching just earlier in in Matthew's Gospel, in fact, where, where Jesus says we should be salt and light. And we think, well... We should go out there and do stuff that makes people like us. Because if they don't like us, they're not going to like Jesus. Okay? If we can't show them we're good guys, nice guys, then why would they ever take the gospel seriously? And it's well-meaning, 
but it's completely backwards. Jesus says they're going to hate you. I don't misunderstand me. We are told to be nice. Okay? This isn't a commission to go out and just be rude to everybody. Not far from it. Of course, you live out the character of love and forgiveness and grace that Jesus describes. But my point is rather that Jesus says the reaction to that is not going to be predominantly, wow, you Christians are brilliant. Tell me about Jesus. I thank God that happens sometimes. But here he says, rather, they're going to persecute you. So we can say we want to be a city on the hill, to use the words of the, the Sermon on the Mount, so the light goes out. But we put a city on the hill and turn the lights on, and one of the things that happens to it is it's easier to attack. They can spot you and go. So be wise in your expectations. Sometimes you'll even need to run away. Do you see that he told the disciples sometimes, in verse 23, they just flee. Sometimes mission gets so dangerous that they're perfectly entitled just to run away. But crucially, verse 22, endure. Just keep going. Don't worry about results. Endure to the end. Stick with me. I'm the only one who can save you, ultimately. So stay with me. Why would you give up on me and sort of join the world? Just keep going. Sometimes, children, it'll be really hard following Jesus. Sometimes you might be the only one in your class who goes to church. You might be the only one in your class who believes in Jesus. And sometimes you might even get teased for being Christians. They might say, why do you go to church? That's so silly. I play football on a Sunday. Sometimes they might say, oh, no one believes in God nowadays. Why do you and your family believe in God? They might tease you. Jesus says, don't worry. I'm with you. Just keep going. Keep going. There was a missionary called John Payton, who in the 19th century wanted to go to um, uh, the New Hebrides Islands. And um, as in not the Hebrides over the top of Scotland, the New Hebrides down there. And uh, at the time, uh, he was pitching to a mission board, saying, I want to go and take the gospel to these guys. They've never heard of Jesus. I need to go out there and... Preach them. And one man, one man on this mission board said, what about the cannibals? You'll be eaten by cannibals. Okay, because there were cannibals on the island, not Scottish. And John Payton said this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether my body is eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> Isn't that a great answer? A bit cheeky to the old guy who's asking the question, but it's a great answer, isn't it? Going to be eaten one way or another. Worms or cannibals, who cares? Just keep going. And your power will come from remembering your identity. You are a disciple, verse 24. We shouldn't have different expectations than Christ. Christ came and suffered for you, died for you to rescue you. He literally went through hell in order that you might be one of his people. So there's nothing that's too hard for him to ask of you. And he will sustain you. There are promises to that effect. But we're doing all this for his sake. Verse 18, for my sake, they'll persecute you. Verse 22, for my sake, you'll be hated. Keep your eyes on the one you're serving. Never mind how people react. They'll hate you, but keep going. And secondly, Jesus says, stay scared so you'll keep speaking. Stay scared so you'll keep speaking. It's 26 through 31 in the verses, that middle section. Verse 26, Jesus says, look, have no fear of them. These people are going to persecute you, even you kill you, for nothing is covered that won't be revealed or hidden that will not be known. I tell you the truth. Sorry, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. What's he saying? Essentially, in those two verses, I think Jesus is saying, one day the truth will out. It will become obvious what, what the truth is. One day it will become obvious that I am Lord of the universe. I am the Son of Man who's sat at the right hand of the Father in glory. 
So the things in verse 26 that are covered or hidden are the same things that in verse 27, if you look, are the things that Jesus is saying in the dark or whispering. They're the things that Jesus is teaching the disciples now. On, on the whole, on earth, Jesus taught the, the twelve. Sometimes he preached crowds as well, but on the whole, he taught the twelve. And he says, look, the things I'm telling you, you know, in the dark as we go to sleep at night, when I whisper to you around the table, we'll go and shout them from the rooftops when I send you out. This, this truth that began with just Jesus and a few men gathered around him is, is going to go global. Proclaim it. The advantages of mission is about proclaiming it, by the way, isn't it? See, it's words that the gospel goes out with. He wants the disciples to be bold, to teach everything that he has taught. He doesn't want them hiding some of the stuff they think won't be very popular, but rather teach everything that he has taught them. And the lesson for us, really, is exactly the same. Our job as a church is to proclaim everything that Jesus told. Not that he told us, but that he told the apostles. So the chain goes Jesus to the apostles, who then write the Bible, and then it's given to us. So our job is to preach what Jesus taught the apostles, i.e. preach the whole Bible. It's why you might have noticed I skipped over the promise uh, in verse 19 and 20. Jesus said, you know, when you're arrested, don't worry about what you're going to say in court. For verse 20, it's not you who speak, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. Well, I'm not sure that's a promise that applies directly to you and me. Okay? If you, go to, if you, if, if you um, get put on tribunal in your workplace because you, ref- um, I don't know, you refuse to sign the policy that says any kind of marriage is okay, or whatever it might be. If you get put on tribunal, this is not a promise that you can just sort of bundle into the courtroom, don't do any preparation, don't worry about a lawyer, um, and magically the words will come out of your mouth given by the Holy Spirit. This is a promise first and foremost to the apostles because they are Jesus' official spokesmen, if you like. They're the ones who can literally speak in the name of God the Father and Jesus his Son. They're the ones, when they speak, it's basically the Holy Spirit speaking through them. Do you see verse 20? That's not always the case with you and me. We make mistakes. We mess stuff up. That's why the Bible's on your laps. Okay, when I preach on a Sunday, I don't sit at my desk away from a Bible and just write some sort of spiritual thoughts that come to me. Now, my job is to teach the Bible. That's why the Bible has to be at the centre of everything. If you want the Holy Spirit to speak, you need the whole Bible preached. That's why also at Christchurch, one of the things we, we do is try and preach through books of the Bible. And so we just take each chapter by chapter by chapter. So I don't even sit at home week by week and think, well, what do I want to do this week? Quite like Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. That's nice. I'll do that one. Um, no, we just move through passage by passage by passage. Because that means you preach the awkward bits, the difficult bits, everything that Jesus whispered, if you like. It means that, that, that what we as a church are hearing is not controlled just by one person picking their choice bits, but rather controlled by what the Lord himself laid out. So so preach fearlessly. How are you going to do that? Well, you're only going to do that. You'll only get rid of fearing people if you fear God more. It's interesting, isn't it? Have no fear, in verse 26, of those who would persecute you. Verse 28, don't fear those who could kill you. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The, The way to be not scared of other people is to be more scared of God. That was that what you expected Jesus to say? If you want to be bold in your evangelism, you want to be bold in speaking for Jesus, we need to be more scared of God the Father. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying we should be sort of cringing with fear, you know, terrified to go near God. And No, not like that. Fear here means a sort of a healthy respect, awe of the fact that he is God. 
And so I care far more what he thinks than what someone in my office thinks, someone in my school thinks, someone in my family thinks. And if we ever are on that front line where we might die for our faith, well, better that than abandon Jesus in the gospel. God doesn't just kill bodies. Ultimately, we, we go to hell if we don't believe in Christ, his saviour. So he will care for you. And he knows your suffering. I think that's the idea in the rest of that passage. 29 through 32, when he talks about knowing the hairs on your head and the sparrows that fall to the ground. He's not saying you won't fall to the ground. He's not saying that none of your hairs will fall. He's saying that he knows, God the Father knows you so well. He knows even how many hairs are on your head. Jordan, how many hairs are on your head? You got any idea? No idea, but God knows. That's how well he knows you. So it's not a promise that he'll protect you, but rather that he knows you and your suffering and therefore can bring you safely home to heaven. Uh, Jesus' warning is that we must keep speaking for him as a church. And part of what will motivate us is that knowledge that there is a final judgment. One day the Father will destroy body and soul in hell. Now that word destroy, that doesn't mean cease to exist. It's not that hell is a place you go and then just stop existing. Uh, It's made perfectly clear in the rest of the Bible that hell goes on forever. It is eternal punishment, just as heaven is eternal perfection and bliss. Uh, Knowing that that is the fate of those who continue to reject Christ is meant to motivate us. Another missionary, a guy called Samuel Zweimer, who was known as the Apostle to Islam, and went out and did, well, incredibly dangerous mission work back in the 19th century. What got him to volunteer for mission is he went to hear a talk on mission. And at the beginning of the talk, uh, the speaker got a metronome. You know, things that mark time. Got a metronome, just put it on the table and set it off. And then just gave his talk, gave his sermon. And Zweymer was sat there thinking, what are you, what are you doing? Like, that's annoying. Turn it off. I can't hear you. And at the end of the talk, Zweymer, uh, the, the speaker, don't know who it was, the speaker said, I sat that metronome. Every time the metronome ticked, it was set at the rate that someone in India is dying. We need people to go and be missionaries to India. And that was one particular call to one particular person. But the principle is there. Eternity matters. So fear God and keep speaking. And then finally, finally, Jesus says, look, I am going to divide society. I'm going to divide, so stay with me, whatever the cost. This is verse 32, through to the end of the passage. But 32, I think, begins the new section. So, everyone who acknowledged me before men. Just like verse 26 began the last section. So, have no fear of them. Jesus is going to divide in different ways. He's going to divide those who do and don't acknowledge him. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father. But those who deny me, I'll deny before my Father. It's me who have the keys to heaven, if you like, says Jesus. If you put your trust in me, then when you get to the gates of heaven, as it were, I will say to my Father, yes, this is one of my people. But if you deny me, don't believe in me, well, you won't be coming in. And that's why he can even say that his purpose, it's confusing, isn't it? Verse 34, isn't it strange? I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to divide people. He doesn't mean literally. Okay, he's not literally encouraging his disciples to take up a sword. In fact, Peter later in Matthew's Gospel picks up a sword to defend Jesus and, and strikes at a soldier and, and Jesus says, put it away and, and heals the soldier's ear. So he's not sending his disciples out to violent action. Definitely not. He is the Prince of Peace. 
he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. He, he, he is not saying we should be violent okay, as Christians, fairly obviously. But he is saying, I've not come to bring peace, but rather to divide people as a sword, a knife divides people. Why? I think simply what he's saying is, I've come up to break, to break up the unity of the human race. Without me, as things stand, that all of humanity is running away from God and heading towards hell. And I want to break up that unity. I want to break up that division. I don't want them to peacefully walk into the fires of hell. So I'm going to, if you like, attack as a soldier and capture people and bring them back up. So in that sense, the human race will then be divided because some will be brought back towards heaven. Now, that is my mission. Sometimes that fault line, that dividing line, will even fall within households. That's why if it comes to it, he says, you must love me even more than your father or mother or son or daughter. The life of a Christian is one of cross-bearing, verse 38. It's not that we don't love our fathers and mothers. We we heard earlier the fifth commandment, honour your father and mother. Of course we're to do that. Jesus isn't getting rid of that commandment, but rather he's saying if it comes to a choice, if your dad says you will not become a Christian, I forbid you, then you have to disobey your father. Again, in our culture, it might seem so alien, but in lots of the world, that's true. A friend who's church planting, even um, uh, in Ireland, just over the waters. And he says, if, if someone f- from the Roman Catholic community just comes to his church, doesn't believe or anything, just comes along, they get shunned by their family. That's no distance at all from here. Fascinating that in uh, Matthew's Gospel, the first cross we're told of is the cross that Christians will bear, not Christ. Verse 38, it's the first time the cross comes up in Matthew's Gospel. Therefore, the first time the cross comes up in the New Testament. And it's Christians, Jesus' disciples, who are bearing it. You will suffer for my sake. And some of you will know that. In just small ways, you will know alienation from family, the way you're held in contempt. Uh, some of you have made sacrifices to enable this church, only a year old, to get off the ground, you will know that pain. And that's why the comfort of knowing that God knows you, every hair of your head, is so striking. And so as we close, two questions to wrap us up. Why is it so negative? Why is this great speech on mission? He wants them to go out and conquer the nations. Ultimately, why so much about suffering and persecution, the different ways you're going to be betrayed and Why is there nothing on technique or success or outcomes? Well, surely it's this, because Jesus cares far more about your faithfulness than your fruitfulness. He cares far more that you stick with him and do what he says than he cares promising you results. I have no idea what the future is like for Christ Church Central Leeds. We're one year old as a church. There is no promise that we're still going to be here in a year's time. Those of you who were here a year ago... And when we started, even, 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 even smaller, there was no promise that we'd grow. What our job is, is not to engineer results, to do whatever we can to get big, but rather to remain faithful to what we think the Lord is saying in his word, the Bible. Same if you're involved in the Christian Union, same if you're involved in workplace evangelism. The reason it's so, I don't want to say negative, because that sounds wrong, but you get the idea, is because Jesus cares about your faithfulness rather than promising you great fruitfulness. So why do we do it? Why do we get engaged in the mission? We do it because all that Jesus has done for us in chapters 8 and 9 
that the way this gospel has been working is that, that Matthew tells a story of three miracles and then Jesus does some teaching. Then there's another three miracles and then some teaching, all the way through eight and nine. And chapter 10 is this long bit of teaching after the miracles. And if we read through eight and nine, they're all pictures of what Jesus has done for you if you're a Christian. He's given you sight, the blind see. You, you were lost. You had no idea about the truth of the gospel. And Jesus has given you sight. He's unstopped your ears. You couldn't hear God's word and understand it. And the Holy Spirit has come and enable you to hear and understand. We were paralysed spiritually, even dead in our sins, and he's raised us up to life. We were unclean and dirty, and he's cleansed us. All the pictures in 8 and 9 have happened to you. They're all pictures of the gospel. Why would we follow a Lord when it means this? Well, because we know we are safe in his hands, and we're full of gratitude for what he's done for us. We were utterly lost without him, and he has done everything to rescue you. So I don't know what details in chapter 10 will happen to you or me. I don't know whether your family will be for you or against you, whether your workplace will be hostile or friendly. But what we do know is Christ loves you. He knows where you are. He knows what situation he has sent you in. And what he cares about, having saved you, opened your eyes, raised you to life, is that you remain faithful to him to the end. And then he will acknowledge you before the Heavenly Father. And what a welcome that will be. Can you imagine arriving in heaven? Nervous, trepidation. You, you die, your last breath, your eyes open, and there is Jesus and the Father on the throne. And Jesus said, this is a faithful servant. This is a son and daughter who's stuck with me through thick and thin. This is one whom I died for, whose eyes I've opened, whose eternal life rests in my hands. Keep going, said Jesus, and leave the results to me. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for faithfulness. Uh, we pray that you'd move us from looking for results, for success, for an easy life, but rather would we delight to serve our master. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. And we pray in your mercy that we would walk with Christ all the days of our life and that the world might see that he is the son of man to whom all authority is given. In his name we ask. Amen.